Well, there's been some big news this week about time travel. No, you didn't miss something too important. Uh, but this week was a date that we've been looking forward for 30 years. <laughs> That's right. In the 80s, there was a trilogy of movies that came out called Back to the Future. And in the second of these movies, Marty McFly travels 30 years into the future to the date, October 21st, 2015. And we passed it this week. And so all throughout the news, they were comparing the things from the movie with where we really are. And, you know, it's interesting. The movie got some things right. They talked about uh, video telephone calls. This was a huge deal, that they could talk to somebody over a video. And we have Skype now and FaceTime, Google Hangouts, all sorts of ways that we can talk online uh, over video conferencing. They had wearable technology. They had these glasses they could wear. and They could see who was calling. I don't know what else they could see. And they were really ugly, just like their real-life counterparts, the Google Glass, where you can, I guess, see things. I don't think that's going to catch on so much. Maybe eventually... But we have watches that will detect our heart rate and, and our activity and things like that. We have wearable technology. There's a little snippet in one scene where there's a, a, like a video game, an arcade game. And little kids say, wait a minute, you have to use your hands. Because evidently in the future, you didn't have to use your hands to play video games. And sure enough, today, we have uh, video games you can control with your body and just with your actions. So they got some things right. They got a few things, unfortunately, very wrong. Flying cars. I mean, we're still waiting for the day of the Jetsons. We still don't have our flying cars. Someday, maybe, we'll be zipping around the air in our DeLoreans. But so far, we're not. The hoverboard. Remember the hoverboard? It was the skateboard. didn't need wheels. It would just hover along. There's some inklings out there. There are some companies have developed some working prototypes, but they don't actually work in everyday use, unfortunately. And then, of course, probably the most outrageous prediction of all time from Back to the Future 2, that the Cubs would win the World Series. <laughs> yeah, as, as a former Chicagoan and somebody that sort of over the years has followed the Cubs a little bit, I'm not too surprised that that didn't come true. Uh, but what are you going to do? But, you know, time travel raises some interesting questions. What if you could go back? What if you could go to a moment where you made a decision and now in your life you've seen how that decision has played out and you could go back and you could talk to yourself and say, don't do it or do this different. What if you could have that do-over where you could change things? As I said earlier, we're walking through the first 22 chapters of Genesis. And some of it we've kind of dug into slowly and picked apart. Some of it we're flying through. Today we're going to be going through five chapters at once. So we're going to move quick. But we're looking at this idea that God instituted a plan in creation. And even though things fell apart in Genesis chapter 3, even though sin enters the world, God's plan has still stayed strong. He hasn't given up on us. He hasn't given up on his plan. And all of scripture records the outworking of that plan through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the church, through us even sitting here today, all the way into the book of Revelation in the somewhat distant future. But there's a big question, I think, that is addressed in chapters 5 through 9. And that is, what if we could just do it over again? 
Sure, Adam and Eve sinned. Sure, sin has entered the world. We looked at chapter 4 last week. Things were pretty bad. One brother kills another. Sin's effects are continuing. But what if? What if the slate could just be wiped clean and somebody better than Adam could come along and do a better job? Wouldn't that just fix everything? And so we're going to look today at Noah and the flood. We're going to walk through quickly. What I want to do is just walk through the text. I want to make sure I don't assume that that you're here today and you necessarily know the story of Noah. Maybe you don't. So we're going to walk through it quickly, hit the highlights and some of the key details. And then we're going to come back and look at some themes that tie in with the rest of Scripture. So that's the goal today. So open up to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. If you really don't have a Bible in your house or or you've lost yours for whatever reason, take ours. As long as you take it home and read it, we don't care. We can get more. We would love to get that in your hands. So first, we'll start with kind of chapter 5, verse 1 through about 6, verse 8. And obviously, since we're covering so much, I'm not going to have time to read all the text as I normally do. We'll uh, touch on a few points here and there. But let's look at verses 1 and 2. This is the written account of Adam's family line. And we looked at this earlier, this idea of the account of is sort of a reference to how did we get from one place to another? How did humanity get from where it was to where it is now? And the flood plays a big role in this. And it starts all the way back in the garden. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. We were created to live under God's blessing. We were created to reflect his glory. We were created with everything that we could possibly need. But then, of course, Genesis chapter 3 comes along. Adam and Eve said, thanks, God, but no thanks. We're going to do things our own way. We're going to eat of this fruit that you told us not to. We want to have this power that you told us was not ours to have. We want to determine good and evil, right and wrong. And it was like, as we looked at, they kicked God off the throne and said, we're going to do a better job and we're going to take God's place. And so here we have the outworking of this. Look at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. That is a sad statement there. Adam was created in the very image of God. Sin entered the world and corrupted Adam. And now as he has children, what's being passed on? Sin. This corruption has entered the world and is going to continue. Adam and Eve had been told in chapter 2, verse 17, that if they did this, if they ate of this fruit, they would surely die. And then we looked at the grace and the mercy of God, even in the judgment, they didn't die right away. They would have offspring. They would have children. The promise would continue. And yet here we have a phrase that is repeated eight times in this chapter. And he died. 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 God's punishment for sin and the consequence of sin is there in the world. And it's a sad testament in chapter 5, over and over again. In a chapter that has these people with these extremely long lives, it is still emphasized, they died. Death has entered the world. But there's another thing that goes along with this passage on death. There's this contrasting idea. Look at chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch 
walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. That's the part at which every other person, it gets to the end and said, and then he died. But with Enoch, it says something different. He walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. If you flip down to chapter 6, verse 9, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And the rest of these chapters record what God did with Noah. So we have this passage on death where death and sin is in the world. And over and over again, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then there's this alternative. But these men walked with God, and they didn't die. Enoch was taken somehow. It doesn't explain it. He was just taken away. He didn't experience death. Noah is saved from the flood through the ark and through following God's instructions. And we're about to look at that. So we have these two ways, death because of sin or life because of God. And chapter 5 really sets up the flood. We all live under this curse of death. As we moved into the flood of Noah, it is a typical response to say, this is not fair. How dare God wipe out people? This is mean and this is awful. Chapter 5 clearly sets up, we are all living under death. Every moment that we draw breath in this world, every moment that we are alive, we are alive because God is showing us mercy. He is not giving us in that moment what we so richly deserve. That's very different from the modern way of looking at things. It's almost as if right or life is our right. We deserve life. God has to give us life. And if something goes wrong, well, God is evil and wrong and awful. It's just the opposite. The Bible is very clear. We deserve death. Now, again, I know if you're sitting here and you're visiting with us, you're thinking, man, I'm so glad I came this morning. This is so happy and wonderful. If we don't understand how awful our sin is, and how we are headed for, destined for death, we will never understand how extreme God's salvation is and how great it is and how wonderful it is. But we must never assume that we are that we deserve God's mercy or that we are owed another day and another breath. And so we enter chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, which continues to set the stage for the flood. It shows us that the evil of sin is at work in humanity. This is a difficult passage with a lot of questions we could dig into, and we don't have time to dig into all the textual issues and the huge questions, but let's breeze through it as quick as we can. Let's just look at verses 1 through 4. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them that they choose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. What does this mean? Fortunately, uh, when I was in college, my wife and I actually were in the same class, the class on Genesis, and we had to and I use those words intentionally, we had to write a research paper on this very subject. Who were the Nephilim? What was the issue here? Who were the sons of God and the daughters of man? 
So we spent separately hours and hours and hours studying these things, outlining these things, charting these things, writing on these things, coming up with this research paper. So I can tell you on pretty good authority, with a pretty educated answer, that the answer to the question is, what is going on here is, we don't know. (laughs) There were all these different variations. What could be this, but we don't really know. Could be this, but we don't really know. Could be this. We don't know. A couple things are clear. Whatever it is, it was clearly wrong. Okay? So they were doing something they knew they shouldn't be doing. That's very clear. And I think in many ways the language is tying back into the original sin. They knew something they should not be doing, but they did it anyway. But another thing is very interesting, and I don't remember researching this for that paper. There's really only one other place in Scripture where these Nephilim, these giants of men, these mighty warriors, there's one other place when they're mentioned. Do you know when it is? When the Israelites first reached the boundaries of the promised land, they sent in 12 guys, spies we call them. They sent in 12 spies to check out the land to see how good it was. This great promise of God, they wanted to see just how good it was. And if they thought they could conquer it, which they were already in trouble, because God had said, I'm going to do this for you. And 10 of those spies come back and they tell a story. They saw, we said, we saw these giants of men in the land. Numbers chapter 13, verses 32 through 33 says, The land we explore devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Talk about facing your giants. Here they are saying, we can't go in there. We can't conquer these people. Now remember, when did the Israelites receive the book of Genesis? It's as they're walking to the promised land. And so here God, I believe, whatever else is going on, I believe God is telling them, let me tell you what I did with the Nephilim. I sent a flood and they were gone. And so here are the Israelites facing something they don't think they can conquer and God's saying, I am way bigger than this. Here's this thing in the world, this difficulty that's outside of them. Things have gotten bad and there's this external threat and God is saying, I am bigger than that. The problem though is that sin is not just out there in the world. It's also in us. Look at verses 5 through 8 of Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is difficult for us to understand. How does an all-knowing, all-seeing God who knows the future just as well as the present, just as well as the past, how do we use the word regret when we look at a God like that? I think we need to understand it's not that God's saying he made a mistake. What God is saying is that it grieves him that things have gotten this bad. The author here, and God is communicating this to the author, is using very human language to help us understand God's serious response to sin. This is really, really bad. 
And so we see two things. One is that sin is very serious. God's attitude towards sin is very serious. He is grieved by it. He is hurt by it so much that he sees that here is his plan, and yet here is sin, and it is undermining his plan. Now, God's plan won't fail. It will continue. But sin is serious, and our sin has serious consequences. But the other thing that we see is the fact that we are not wiped out shows us that something other than our sin is at work. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Your version might have a different word there. It might have the word grace. Because this is the Old Testament word for grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This concept, especially in the Old Testament, is kind of like living under a king who chooses to show you blessing whether or not you deserve it, who chooses to protect you whether or not you deserve it. You are living under the grace of that king. And God is showing grace to Noah. It's a theme that runs all throughout Scripture. As we enter the New Testament, we see it is by grace you are saved, through faith in this not of yourselves. And so these two things are going on. We see sin and its consequence and the seriousness of it, but we also see the favor and the grace of God. So here we are in a world where sin is at work. Death is spreading in the world. The consequences of sin are working out in people's lives. And what will God do about it? Is God just going to step back and say, well, no big deal. I just love you all. It really doesn't matter. We'll just we'll work this out. Is he going to come to the people and just say, you need to try a little harder. If you just worked harder, all this would go away. How does God deal with the sin? Look at chapter 6 of Genesis, starting in verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. And then he goes on to explain how. Skip down to verse 22. Noah did everything just as the Lord commanded him. In this passage, God gives very specific directions for how he's going to save Noah. He didn't come to Noah and say, Noah, it's about to rain. I know you don't really know what that means because it's never really happened before, but this earth is going to be flooded. Man, you better figure this out because you're in big trouble. Just figured I'd give you a heads up. It's not what he does. He doesn't come to Noah and give him a set of instructions. Noah, I'm about to wipe out the world, but I'm going to save you. Here's what you've got to do. A, B, C with flow charts and diagrams. Here's what you need to do. And Moses or Noah says, great, thanks, that's wonderful. And then he walks over here and says, I've got a better idea. I've had this idea for a ski boat for a long time. This is going to be great. And he just does his own thing. No, God gives very specific instructions to Noah, and Noah follows those specifically. This is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. When you get to the Exodus and the Israelites wandering wandering through the wilderness, this is the point in Scripture where if you're reading the Bible cover to cover, most people get bogged down because it's so specific. 
make yourself a tabernacle this wide, this long, this type of metal, have it face this way. You're going to put this thing in it. You're going to decorate it in this way. You can go in on this day, but not this day. It's very, very specific. And Exodus chapter 39, verse 32 records, the Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. The problem of sin in the world is so extreme that we need very specific instructions from God to say, this is my way of salvation. It's easy in this day and age to say, well, we we can just figure out what saves us. We can just figure out what makes us good. If the problem of sin was tiny, sure, why not? But since the problem of sin is so big, we are not left to ourselves to just figure it out. In John chapter 14, Thomas asked Jesus, what is the way to the Father? Do you know Jesus' very specific instructions? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way of salvation is not up to us. We don't get to just figure it out. We don't get to come up with our own way to work this out in this world. We don't get to pick a little bit from here and a little bit from there. God says the danger is real. Sin is extreme. I will provide the way of salvation and you must follow me. And now we move into chapter 7. Noah enters the ark and God brings the animals to him to provide a means of salvation, not just for Noah, but for all of creation. Look at chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. There's a lot of debate over the flood. And a lot of people look at this and they say, oh, you Christians, you're so backwards, you're so dumb to think that water could ever cover the world. People have done the math and said, look, guys, there's not even enough water in the world to cover these mountains. This is ridiculous. This is foolish. There's a couple things, and we don't have time to go into all the details, but I do want to point out a couple things. The first is the world then was very much different than the world now. So to take the world now and to say, does this make sense? I would say is the wrong starting point. First of all, there was no rain. There's no record of rain before this time. There is some inkling that there was this massive quantities of water up in the air somehow, some way. Now, people would want to say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Scientists don't uh, can't confirm that. Well, We're talking about a God who looked at sin and wiped out the world with a flood. I think God can enter in and change science when he wants to, can't he? We're talking about a world that had evidently vast reservoirs of water underneath the surface. And these poured up through. And so you have the heavens pouring down and the earth pouring up and the world is flooded. There's another interesting thing. There's evidence in scripture that the geography of the earth has changed considerably since the flood. In Psalm 104, verses 8 and 9, 
a text, I'll be honest, is much debated about whether it applies to this or not. But in the English Standard Version, it says this. It speaks of these waters that covered the earth, which I believe is a reference to the flood. And it says the mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not again cover the earth. So it's quite possible that when God was drying up the flood, one of the ways he did this was he rose up mountains and he sunk down valleys. And so you can see right away to take our current mountains and say, well, how much water would it take to cover that really doesn't make sense. We're dealing with a God here that can move mountains. I think he can flood the world. Really, ultimately, the question, when we go to a miracle or we look at something like this that seems so supernatural, beyond nature to us, the first question we have to ask ourselves is not whether or not it makes sense, whether or not science has proven it. The first question we need to ask ourselves is, can God do this? That's the first question. Because if our answer to that is, no, even God can't do this, it really doesn't matter what our conclusion is. We're wrong. Even if we're right, we're wrong because we're wrong about God. Can God do this? But the other thing we need to see is that Scripture is very clear. Everything died. That's the important thing here. We can argue about how high or wide or whatever the waters were, but Scripture says God wiped out everything. So if you want to believe in a local flood, somehow you have to deal with the fact that everything else on the entire earth died with that flood that was just in one place. And I would say scientifically that doesn't make a lot of sense either. So we have this flood that wipes out everything and the waters remain on the earth for 150 days as we enter chapter 8. For 150 days, the waters are, it's raining, it's pouring, there's these deeps underneath the ground are pouring forth water and the flood is accumulating. And then it stops. And it takes another 150 days for the flood waters to reside or to recede. And the ark comes to rest on the top of a mountain. Eventually, Noah and his family come out of the ark and Noah builds an altar and worships God. And so we go to chapter 9. Look at verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds of the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground and all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. There's a restatement of the creation purpose and the creation blessing. God's plan from the beginning has not stopped. And so he passes it on to Noah. In this passage, we also have God saying to Noah, you are free to eat of the animals. But he specifically says, again, forbidding murder, that all life belongs to God. And he knows of and is aware of and has an account of each and every person's life. And then in chapter 9, verses 18 through 17, God establishes a covenant. This promise, this binding of God to his creation to say, this is what I'm going to do. I promise never again will I wipe out everything through a flood. So we have this epic story of this worldwide flood and sin being judged and God saving humanity through Noah. This huge, epic story. And then we get to the second part of chapter 9. Look at verses 18 through 29. Actually, skip down to verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. We don't know when this was. 
assuming it was late enough after the flood to allow the vineyard to grow, so maybe some years later, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Here we have this epic story where God raises up a righteous man to save humanity, and right after that story, the man is drunk and lying naked. I don't know today if we can understand the shame that this meant for Noah. This was not a, oops, you know, he just had one too many. This was an absolute shame on himself and on his family. To get drunk is to give up something, some control in your life that belongs solely to God, and it is forbidden expressly throughout Scripture. To lie naked like this, was no. it was like Noah was saying, I don't care. I'm full of sin. I'm shamed. I don't care. I can do this. doesn't matter. This is a huge mark on Noah's character. But the story continues. Look at verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Now, the implication from this story is not Ham going, oh my goodness, this is pretty serious. Hey, brothers, help me out. We need to fix this. This is bad. This is Ham going, have you guys seen dad? Come here. You got to check this out. It's hilarious. Ham is mocking his father. He's not trying to cover his sin. He's trying to uncover it even more. He's trying to show his brothers. And his brothers do just the opposite. They refuse to look. They enter backwards and they cover up their father's nakedness. And why? Why after a story like this, why take the hero and make him look like a fool? Because sin is still in the world. We don't get a do-over. We don't need just a new start. We can't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to do everything different. All the sin has been wiped away and I will just be perfect now. It didn't work. We need more than just a do-over. So let's quickly look at a few key themes. God rescues us from death. This theme runs all throughout Scripture. God rescued humanity through Noah. When the world is lost and dark and desperately wicked, God provides a way. Matthew 7, 13 through 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In this massive world of sin, there is a thread of grace that is running through this gospel of God's salvation that he offers to each one of us. Another key theme is that God deals with sin. The world of Noah's day was really bad. It was really bad. We like to talk about how bad our world was. I think this was worse. Things had gotten completely out of hand. And yet God steps in. And he restrains sin in a couple different ways, one being the flood. I think we need to understand we are completely unaware of how much God restrains sin in our world. That's his grace, his mercy. As bad as things might be, I think we need to understand constantly it could be worse if it was not for the restraining mercy of God upon sin in this world. But we must never think that God's patience in dealing with sin, means that God thinks sin is okay. Just because God is waiting to get rid of sin and to deal with sin, just because God is allowing sin in our lives and the lives of the world around us, doesn't mean God is saying, it's no big deal. It's okay. We all deserve death. All the time. 
And all the time that we have before death is a testimony to God's grace. Second Peter 3, 8 through 10 says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everyone and everything in it will be laid bare. God will deal with sin. He is dealing with sin. Don't ever mistake the ongoing sin in the world for God's attitude of complacency towards sin. And he has two ways of dealing with sin. One is through judgment. We see it in the flood. We see it again in the book of Revelation where sin on the world is judged. The other way of dealing with sin is through salvation. He offers a way of life. Another theme that we see is that we need more than just a do-over. Sin is deeper than just a few bad choices. We can't just try a little bit harder. At the beginning of chapter 6, in verses 11 through 12, the word corrupt is used three times. We are messed up. This world is messed up. No amount of good intentions or better decisions is going to change that. There's another theme. We need a better intercessor. There's a theme throughout Scripture, and it begins with Adam as God's representative. And now it moves to Noah. Noah represents the people before God and God to the people in this act of salvation. He's this intercessor, this go-between between us and God. Noah's pretty amazing. He's really righteous. He's incredibly obedient. He does something that made no sense to anybody in building the ark and in trusting God. It's phenomenal. But then what happened at the end? His character was flawed. His sin came out. This is a theme that happens again and again. Abraham, who we'll be introduced to in a little bit, he fails. Moses, amazing guy, he fails. David, a man after God's own heart. King, he fails. We need a better intercessor. And so the New Testament opens its pages with Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. Look, we don't have a time machine to go back and change our mistakes. But even if we could, we would still be people who make mistakes. Look at the Israelites in the desert. They received the book of Jesus, or I'm sorry, the book of Genesis. They were called to trust and follow God every step along the way. We too are wandering through this world of sin. We're headed toward a promised land. Jesus is coming back to take us home. Along the way is this constant choice. Will we trust? Will we follow his thread of grace, his way of salvation? Are you here today and just trying to build a better boat? Are you just trying to fix your mistakes? As good as that may be and as good as and, and important as it is that we try to do that, we need to understand that's not salvation. Salvation comes from God through Jesus Christ. God has given us His Son who can calm the waves, eliminate the flood, and ultimately through His death and resurrection, remove the corruption of sin. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this difficult passage, 
These things are not happy and joyous, thinking about life being wiped out and sin being wiped out through this flood. And yet, God, we need to come to terms with the fact that you are a God who holds life in your hands. It is from you and for you that life exists. And as corrupted as life is, we deserve death because of our sin. And so, Father, when we look at a passage like this, what should wow us is not that life is wiped out in this way, but that any life continues through your salvation at all. Because it is so undeserved. And yet it is your plan, your thread of your gospel of grace that flows throughout all of the Old Testament and the New Testament and is offered to each person here today. And then, God, we have to ask ourselves, what are we trusting as we trust in your gospel, as we accept your grace and your mercy through your son Jesus, how are we going to walk? How are we going to live? How are we going to follow you each and every day? Are we going to turn to the ways of the world? Are we going to trust in the powers of this world that you can wipe out with one movement of your hands and through your judgment you will? Or are we going to trust in you whose plan is eternal, whose love continues on and on and on forever and ever? It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.